0: In our first episode, we discussed Twelfth Night's unusual emotional tone. It's a romantic comedy that ends with a set of marriages. But throughout the play, and even at its festive conclusion, there are notes of melancholy and sadness. The question of the play's genre, of what kind of story it is, is raised straight away by the play's title. And it's a question that leads us towards the play's other key themes, including the transgression and inversion of social norms. Guiding our discussion is Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford. The twelfth
1: night of Christmas festivities is the eve of Epiphany. It suggests the end of the Christmas period. I think that atmosphere of festivity, and for me crucially the end of festivity, really important. So festival traditions in Shakespeare's England were periods of sort of feasting and of inversion. And by inversion, I mean, uh, they were often marked by rituals like servants sat at table and masters waited on them, that there were sort of social and also gender rituals of inversion that were part of festivity. That atmosphere of of excess and of overturning perhaps what are normal social restrictions or social conventions. So festivity and comedy, the idea that that comedy is itself a form of festival, I think that's all important to the play.
0: If we think of the play Twelfth Night as being like Twelfth Night itself, both a festival and the end of a festival, we'll get a clue as to how to think about the play's genre and tone.
1: One quite useful way of seeing Twelfth Night is as the the pivot between so-called festive comedies with broadly happy endings and the plays that we've come to call problem plays where the social or sort of philosophical problems that they represent can't really be resolved. Twelfth Night comes at the end of Shakespeare's comic period, just into the 17th century. It shares an interest in in romantic comedy as the kind of shaping, the immediate shaping genre. That's to say, these are plays which are going to end in marriage. We've also got a sort of social stat- satire, I think. This is a play really concerned with social status. And I think we sometimes lose that, that alongside its playfulness and permissiveness about sexuality and gender, it has a real kind of restricted view and a very conservative view about social status, that people sort of stay in their in their place. And it punishes the one social climber very prominently. The other play that I think I'd want to put in conversation with Twelfth Night is actually quite different. And it's the play that I think Shakespeare's working on more or less at the same time, Hamlet. Now, Hamlet obviously is the archetypal tragedy, and it may seem that it's got nothing in common with, with Twelfth Night at all, but I actually find the juxtaposition quite helpful. It it points up how steeped in mourning and melancholy Twelfth Night is, particularly at the beginning, just like the castle of Elsinore. It gives us children operating, trying to find a place for themselves. In the shadow of the dead father. There's a lovely piece by an actor Zoe Wanamaker who played played Viola and she talks about Viola as a catalyst that she sort of introduced into a society in Illyria where things are stuck. Orsino is stuck in this self-indulgent, slightly sonneteering kind of love melancholy. Olivia is stuck Cloistered, weeping for the people she's lost, and that Viola Cesario's job is to is to shake that up and to to give people a a way out of this these damaging kinds of behaviours.
0: The main way Viola shakes things up and causes other characters to change is by changing herself by becoming Cesario. The obvious way to describe what she does in adopting this new appearance and name is to say she disguises herself as if the male Cesario is a false identity concealing her true one. But Emma Smith thinks that this is not quite the right way to think about it.
1: It's interesting to think whether the word disguise or or the idea of disguise or even cross-dressing is quite sufficient really to, to register what Viola chooses to do as Cesario. So, I've been interested in what it might be like to take Viola's transformation into Cesario seriously, and rather than thinking it, of it as a, a sort of contingent plot device, and what that might open up about the play's understandings of of, of gender and of identity. I think perhaps the one most significant thing about twelfth night is that it is written for a theater in which all the actors are male so the male characters and the female characters are all played by male actors and i think that's important because we used to think that was just you know that that was just how it was it was just something people took for granted but if you look at twelfth night it's a play which really pushes at that acceptance and and I think encourages us to ask questions about it or to to interrogate it differently so I think the performance conditions for which it was written that all male theater is is the crucial thing to its playfulness and transgression about gender the female character viola who we see perhaps for about 15 minutes in her presumably wet female clothes, spends the rest of the play, including the end when she is betrothed to Orsino, spends all the rest of the time in male clothing. And what we just absolutely don't know, I think is really fascinating, is whether the male actor playing a female character dressed as a male has any vestige of femininity at all, so is it putting on an additional layer of uh, costume or is it really just taking a costume off? And there are lots of uh, interesting ways in which the male persona of Viola, Cesario, is more prominent in the play than the fact that she is really, sort of in inverted commas, she's really a woman uh, underneath. So I think that's the great sort of confusion, gender confusion at the heart of the play, the sense that gender is a kind of performance, that what's underneath is really just another kind of performance, and that the, the, the true identity of Viola, which seems so important for... Readings of the play, actually in performance, is it, it, it is is quite difficult to pin down. I think the play really enjoys that, and I think that's one of the things that we we really appreciate about the Elizabethan theatre, the late Elizabethan theatre. It's a it's a place of playfulness and enjoyment and a transgression, which perhaps doesn't tell us all that much necessarily about what goes on outside the theatre but rather shows us that art, theatre, performance is able to do things and take people with it. And one reason I say that is because of all the characters in the play, Viola, who, who spends uh, the majority of it dress, dressed as a man, so usurping or, or, or presuming to a position of power, which she might not have been expected to have in early modern society, Viola gets exactly what she wants at the end of of the play So Viola's transgression, if indeed it is transgressive, is rewarded That feels to me important in thinking about how the stage thinks about gender and uh, sexual identity As opposed to how a broader society uh, thinks about it
0: Viola, or Cesario, is one of the several characters who transgresses boundaries or social categories in the world of Twelfth Night. But not all of these transgressions are rewarded, as we see when the steward Malvolio attempts to cross a status line.
1: Malvolio seems to cross two lines in the play. One is, I think, the importance of merriment and comedy. So that's the kind of Malvolio as a Puritan, Malvolio as a killjoy. This is the initial spur for the trick that's played on him by Sir Toby and the others. But how that trick presents a kind of elephant trap for Malvolio is how fully he enters into the, the lie that Olivia is in love with him, and how... In what detail, what loving, upwardly mobile detail he imagines his life married to her—it's a fantasy of social elevation, uh, of no longer being the steward but being the master of the house—and I think that really is what the play can't quite forgive, because of of all the, of all the things that people do that are transgressive in one way or another, perhaps. Malvolio's fantasy of his life with Olivia is the one which is most heartily punished. And I think it does depend a little bit on production, how far the audience goes along with that punishment. There's a lot of setup for Malvolio's first piece of uh, ridiculing, which is that he's going to show himself in these yellow cross garters. That can be a very funny scene in performance. I think you have to now be quite hard to feel that the scene where he is imprisoned and made to feel he's going mad, I mean, sort of gaslit in the most cruel way, I think it's quite hard to see that as a funny scene now. He's the butt of a joke which gets harsher and more violent and more cruel.
0: It's clear that the play punishes Malvolio for his attempted social transgressions. But for another character, it's a little less clear whether her transgressions are punished or rewarded.
1: I think Olivia is a really interesting character in all of this. And there was certainly influential feminist scholarship about the play who said that Olivia is the really transgressive model of femininity in this play, not Viola, the challenge to sort of normative modes of femininity in the play really comes from Olivia, somebody who doesn't want to get married, who runs her own household, who is a powerful, competent uh, operator who doesn't seem to need a husband. The play really shows us that if you're a woman who dresses as a man, that's kind of fine. But if you're a woman who tries to sort of play the man in your own household, that's not so good. And you probably ought to be married off so that your real husband can can take over and, and regulate this behavior. W- one quite dark argument might be Olivia is being punished for her resistance to marriage and her attempts to be an independent woman. She's being f- palmed off on someone she doesn't know and who the play presents as, I mean, at best, a kind of airhead spending other people's money. That seems to be really all Sebastian does. I guess a more positive way of seeing it might be that Sebastian's presence at the end of the play enables Viola Cesario to be both people, enables Olivia to get her version of Cesario and Orsino to get his version. The end of the play seems to me a sort of wish fulfilment in all kinds of ways, that the object of Olivia's desire sort of is materialised in Sebastian, and that enables Viola to be in two places at once.
0: We could say that the two places Viola occupies are the roles of Olivia's male partner and Orsino's female partner. But we could also say that Viola simultaneously occupies the role of Orsino's wife and his closest friend, roles that weren't generally combined in Shakespeare's time, but which merge in the permissive world of Twelfth Night.
1: One thing Twelfth Night does in the sequence of Shakespeare's comedies is it, it squares a kind of circle that often Shakespeare's comedies have been about the conflict between male-male friendship and male-female romantic love. What Twelfth Night enables, particularly for Orsino, is that that he can have his best friend, his best buddy, and also his his wife, that he doesn't have to choose between them because they're actually the same person. And what that does is to give a different twist to that high cultural status that Renaissance Society put on male friendship and the relatively low status it put on male-female, on the the sort of emotional or intellectual quality of male-female relationships. One real irony about Twelfth Night is that Orsino and Viola are able to get to know each other really well, despite the fact that Viola is pretending to be someone that she isn't. And that's because male-male friendships, or apparently male-male friendships, which are extremely important, they have a really high cultural importance in, in, in Shakespeare's time, those, are, those enable forms of intimacy, forms of proximity, forms of shared discussion and shared ideas, which high, so high status courtship between men and women really doesn't allow at
0: all. The intimacy and intellectual sharing afforded by male-male friendships may be one reason that Viola never reveals herself as a woman to Orsino until the play's very end. And, significantly, even at the very end, she continues to be called and to dress as Cesario.
1: It would seem that if you were trying to sort of reinstate a heteronormative marital ending, you would have Viola come back in a big dress and a a sort of tableau of the couples at the end. But Viola doesn't do that. For me, that suggests that Viola Cesario is always a kind of in-between figure, is not securely a woman who disguises herself as a man for some particular practical reasons and then gives up the disguise when that work's done. Cesario seems really important to who she is and who she's going to continue to be. And the fact that that's not completely resolved at the end feels very modern uh, in my reading of the play.
0: This modern perspective on gender, the idea that Cesario is as important to Viola's identity as Viola, is communicated by the split nature of the play's ending. On the one hand, it seems to clarify and re-establish gender and gender identities. On the other hand, characters keep reminding each other and the audience that those identities have not been stabilised. After Sebastian and Cesario meet and Sebastian realises that Olivia was originally drawn to his sister, his words to Olivia underline the gender ambiguity at work.
1: You would have been contracted to a maid, he says. You are betrothed both to a maid and man. And that's a really interesting phrase. Logically and practically, he means both to the disguised Viola and to me, but in a more Conceptual way, I suppose, we we again see this specter of the half man, half woman, the kind of composite twins, the composite Sebastian Viola. I think that that these unions look quite striking on the stage. You have got what's ostensibly two two men who are the, a couple, and a woman and a man who are the other couple. So you've got something which which looks l- less normative. I think it's possible to play the ending as the end of playfulness and the end of sort of gender disruption and the return to heteronormativity and heterosexual normative marriage i think that would be easier if shakespeare had written viola back into her women's clothes which which he doesn't do and we see importantly orsino continues to address Viola as Cesario, so you shall be while you are a man. But when in other habits you are seen, Orsino's mistress and his fancy's queen. When will we ever see uh, Viola or Cesario in these other habits? Well, actually, never. There isn't a sense that Viola has come back into the frame at all. It, it, one could argue that Cesario is the person who gets married, not not Viola. So those relationships at the end do, in some ways. Re- reorient themselves around more normative ideas of of coupledom but they, they they're still questioning that i think in some, in some interesting ways so there's a sense that perhaps they're, they're still not all quite settled down and that seems important to me that the that the sort of normative marriages the male female marriages are not fully embraced at the end and in fact here they're quite explicitly Pushed, pushed off and deferred off in favour of a final tableau, which is much more, yeah, I think the modern word is probably right, much more queer, queer in in, in all its ways of sort of transgressive or non-normative, in that it has sibling relationships, same-sex relationships, r- relationships of strangers uh, all in the frame as opposed to courtships, standard courtships leading to marriage.
0: There's one particularly significant relationship in the final tableau that doesn't take the form of a couple. It's the relationship between Antonio and Sebastian, now splintered by Sebastian's marriage to Olivia. Antonio plays no role in the comedy's push to pair people off, but that's partly why Emma Smith finds him so interesting.
1: I'm really, really fascinated by Antonio because, in a way, He's a completely unnecessary character to the play, and yet he is there. Antonio's sort of unnecessary in that for an ending of the play which understands Viola and Sebastian as the sort of male-female single character, in order for that to work well, we don't want Sebastian to have too much personality of his own. And Antonio's main function in the plot is to give... Sebastian more opportunity to show personality and history and backstory. So it's all very, very, very puzzling and very interesting. And I think that Shakespeare has brought Antonio into the play to give us an example of a different kind of, another kind of love, not necessarily a different kind.
0: On stage, Antonio's love for Sebastian is often performed as homoerotic or homosexual, and sometimes so is Sebastian's love for Antonio. Antonio's love is also distinctive for its generosity. In a play with numerous narcissistic or self-centred characters, Antonio stands out as someone who risks imprisonment and possibly death to help and to protect the person he loves.
1: Antonio then
0: becomes the
1: model of generous or selfless love that what he tends to be doing is giving things to sebastian protecting him and then ultimately you know giving him away or watching while he is given away uh, to someone else at the end of the play we've got all kinds of characters who can't be included in the circle of couples the, and antonio watches sebastian married to olivia and there isn't really very much There isn't much space for him.
0: Twelfth Night offers a happy ending to some of its characters, but not to all. Antonio and Malvolio, in different ways, find themselves excluded from relationships they desired. And these cracks in the comedic ending, how it's filled both with mirth and disappointment, reflect the play's distinctive emotional palette, its combination of sadness and joy. We generally see these emotions as opposites, and so we see the corresponding genres of tragedy and comedy as opposites too. But for Shakespeare, says Smith, those genres might not be opposites at all. Twelfth Night, I think,
1: is in between those. It begins with this atmosphere of of melancholy and death. It ends with Feste's song uh, about the wind and the rain, the rain it raineth every day, death and sadness always sort of threatening to to come in come into the play or to to overtake the attempts at happiness or or distraction this is a dangerous world it's a world of shipwrecks it's a world uh, where not everybody who is dead comes back to life and a world of sort of sadness and rejection as well as a world of connection and merriment that continues throughout Sometimes I feel that tragedy sees death and melancholy as an ending, and that's very dramatic and very sort of beautifully shaped, whereas comedy realises that in good ways and in very difficult ways for humans, death and melancholy are actually part of life and you have to carry on after them. So comedies tend to start, really, in a way where tragedies have, have, have ended. They pick up, try and pick up the pieces or they try and imagine how people sort of get going again after these past, past sort of traumas. So it feels to me as if they're perhaps the same kind of tragedy and comedy for Shakespeare, maybe, have some of the same events, but in a different order.
0: In our next episode, we'll see how the play blends tragic and comic moods from the very first lines, and how it blends laughter and cruelty. We'll also analyse key speeches that set out that contrast between self-love and generous love.